Hello, and welcome to Bobby and Yen's presented by Zwift. One thing I'm thankful for is still being able to train with friends on Zwift any time of the day. Being motivated by the massive community means there's always someone to ride with and new locations to explore. Like the new Japanese-inspired Makuri Islands and my personal favorite route, the Mega Pretzel on Watopia. Riding with friends makes the training easier and they always know how to push me. Visit Zwift.com and I'll see you on there soon. Ride on. Hello and welcome back to another holiday episode of Bobby and Jens. My name is Bobby Julik and over there stocking Santa's sleigh is Mr. Jens Vogt. Jensy, how's it going over there with all the preparations? It's all good. Just a few more days of school. School holidays this year, very short. Uh, we got everything ready. Well, I believe um, my wife um, got everything ready since July for Christmas. She is super prepared. Um, she is a 100% German woman. Um, I'm a little later than her, but I am all good and ready so we can relax. Look forward to enjoy a hopefully peaceful Christmas family time. Man, is it in the DNA of male and female that we wait until the last minute? And like you said, they've they've had this all planned since like the middle of the summer. I mean, it's almost embarrassing. I'm thinking like, man, I got plenty of time. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it next week. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it next week. And then boom, we're here. But uh, we got it all sorted. Uh, my oldest daughter came back uh, for her Christmas break. So it's nice to have her in the house again. But enough about our holidays. We have quite the special Christmas present for our listeners today. We have Mr. Tony Hawk as our special guest. So get comfortable, get that glass of eggnog, and listen to our great interview with the legend, the man, the myth, Tony Hawk. Okay, today, folks, we have a very special guest. We're very honored to have Mr. Tony Hawk with us on Bobby and Jens. Tony, welcome to Bobby and Jens. Thank you. Thank you very much. Man, I tell you, this this is quite the treat for us. Um, you know, of course, you're known as one of the best skateboarders of all time and definitely synonymous with the sport of skateboarding. But did you ever have any interests in, in other sports or was just from day one, skateboarding was your destiny? Oh, no. When I was a kid, I played uh, Little League and I played basketball um, because all my friends were doing that. And then honestly, I got into skateboarding for the same reason because a few of my friends were doing it, but mostly my older brother was doing it because he was a surfer. And so I used it mostly as transportation. And then at some point, when I got old enough, I got to go to the skate park uh, for the first time. And when I saw people flying out of swimming pools, that, that was hooked. That was it. I, I quit everything else. So at, at what age you actually discover, I love this sport. This is the one I made for. How old were you when you decided this is the one and only sport for me? I can't, I can't say it. I, I said it was the one I made for, but, but I probably chose it around at, at age 10. Um, so I, I would say that 
I, I fell in love with it then. I didn't think I was actually very good at it. I just knew that I, I wasn't going to quit. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, doing a little bit of research, you know, of course, know you by name, seen you. I'm not going to act at all like I know anything about the technical aspects of your sport. But being six foot three, um, is that... that <laughs> Is that been an advantage or a little bit of a challenge for someone that has to be, you know, flipping and rotating through the air? Uh, well, I, when I grew up, I was very small. So I'm not saying that was an advantage or a disadvantage. It was a disadvantage in a lot of ways because I couldn't generate the speed necessary for the tricks, kind of tricks I wanted to do. Um, and then I got tall very quickly around age 16 and... I just learned to adapt to my new size, um, but I was always really flexible. So I, I don't know. I, I, I feel like there were advantages to both. Um, I kind of remained a, a, a more flexible probably than my peers. And so being tall has its advantages because uh, I skate ramps and the ramps become less intimidating when you're taller. So when I, uh, when I did read it right, uh, your older brother he actually showed you the first or he gave you the first lessons on the skateboard is that correct uh he gave well he he gave me my first skateboard so yeah and in a lot of ways i was learning from him yes um he was a surfer but he started skating because skating was like an extension of surfing and then one day i picked up one of his old boards and just started riding it uh in the in the alleyway near our home And he said I could have it, and then that was it. That was my first skateboard. It was a hand-me-down from him. Um, and then he would, when I finally got to go, started to go to the skate parks, once a week he would drive home from college and come pick me up and take me to the skate park. So like once a week was was our outing. And and then um, after less than a year, he kind of stopped doing it, and I found other ways to do it. But you mentioned something there about being flexible. Um, are you naturally just flexible or do you have to work at it? I mean, I can imagine when you're younger, I think we all were quite flexible. But like older we get, I mean, we're all over 50 now. Um, is that something that you have to work at? Is that a regime that you had? Because, man, I look at that being such a major part of you know endurance sports, but I never really thought about that from a, a, an explosive sport, anaerobic sport like your own. Um, I, I think I was naturally flexible, um, and I was always so active that I never lost that. Um, into my adult life, I became less flexible, I think just because of age and, and more, more atrophy, but I've managed to stay consistently active, and I think that's my only secret. I mean, I, there's definitely things that I used to be able to do that I just can't do anymore in terms of how I move my body, and... I haven't had the motivation to try to get back to that. So to answer your question, I don't do, I don't do anything outside of skateboarding to try to stay flexible. Um, and if I did, maybe I would be able to bring back some of those techniques and some of those moves. But honestly, like I'm pretty happy with, with what I can do now. And um, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to chase the dragon and, and just stay young forever. So I've kind of accepted it. That's a great answer. Um, one more question I have. Um, 
about your uh, the start of your your career when you uh, did turn professional at the age of 14 is that correct that's true yeah what did your parents say what did your parents say to that i mean 14 year old turning professional yeah it sounds fantastical but in the world of skateboarding at that time it was very small the industry was small the the there was no living to be made i mean when i turned pro it basically meant that i was competing in a different division with skaters that were a little older than me and we were all gunning for the first place of 100 like that was that was the height of skateboarding right then so no one was making a living at it and so the the term pro it would be like saying i'm a professional uh yo-yo performer i'm a professional disc golf performer at age 14 like there was just no money in it um or hula hoop like that's that's the equivalent of what skateboarding was at the time so i didn't think i was choosing a career for myself um i was excited that someone thought i was good enough to be a professional <laughs> and that was about it that's that's really all i i, I just love doing it I, i didn't think that i was making a living at it one thing i'll, I'll say right now is I basically got on a skateboard once, almost busted my butt and never really got on it again. Just because I saw the fear, I saw the potential of, of injury. But I mean, skateboarding is obviously a dangerous sport. And when you don't execute, uh, there's a price to pay. It's just like us going downhill, you know, some some descent in the Tour de France at 70K an hour. If you flip over the guardrail, you know, you're going you're gonna to pay the price because, you know, we don't have protective, that much protective gear on. So I don't want to ask you how many bones you've broken because I'm sure that's a long, long list. But um, <laughs> it's not actually. It's not. I, I've only broken two bones, like officially two bones. Um, wow. I broke my elbow um, and I broke my pelvis, which was basically the main bone, um, which I don't recommend doing, um, and uh, fractured my, my thumb. Okay, so I have to ask you about, about the it. pelvis because that sounds like quite the slam. So, what was what happened there? Uh, well, I was doing a um, I was doing a full loop ramp, like a, a whole kind of like a Hot Wheels track, and it's something that I had done in the past. Um, but this day I was doing it. It was it was a, a different loop. It was it was actually a, a little bit weathered, and I didn't take into consideration that it was slower than the other one I had done. So when I went to go up the wall, my timing was off and I ended up sort of uh, coming off the wall as I was going up. So that means like my body's momentum kept going and then I felt, so I, I got to the top and fell straight down uh, about 14 feet. And um, yeah, that was it, broke my pelvis, uh, fractured my thumb and my skull, got a pretty serious concussion and um, spent the next couple months uh just kind of in bed oh well but you're still lucky then you walked away from it finally so that's i didn't quite walk good away <laughs> i eventually was walking <laughs> but not that day <laughs> but yes i was i was you know for me it was it was a it was probably the hardest road to recovery obviously it was it was the most traumatic injury i've ever had and Just to get back on my skateboard felt like a feat in itself. And to get back to the level of skating I was at took about a year. And it, and it was a lot of work. See, that, that's the thing that uh, always amazes me about sports people is, you know, you, 
guys have terrible accidents. Uh, one of the the best writers of the generation, Chris Froome, um, basically broke himself in half and is now making his way back. And people really expect that as soon as he gets back on the bike, that he's going to be where he was pre-injury. Um, tell us about your mental mindset and the challenges that you had, not only uh, with getting back to that top form, but maybe, you know, those, those doubts, am I ever going to do this again? Because that's the, it's, it's easy to be a winner. It's easy to be the best at something, but when you're the best and then you start to doubt yourself due to, you know, an injury or a sickness or some, you know, misstep along the way in your preparation, what, what is the skater mental mindset coming back from something like that? Uh, Well, it was, it, it was one thing with, with getting the physical recovery um, and it was really just baby steps. It was like, I would set small goals for myself and figure that out. Like at one point it was, it was walking without a limp. Can I walk without a noticeable limp? And then if I start skating, am I able to, uh, have this much endurance or, or do, do this, this trick that I used to take for granted. And that was the hardest thing to overcome was that suddenly my whole view and mindset changed because I didn't take anything for granted anymore. And there were tricks that I used to do all the time that I didn't even worry about. And suddenly they were daunting and they were scary. And that was the hardest thing to overcome. I'd say that my style changed a bit when I did make what I consider a full recovery because there were things that I just weren't, I wasn't that interested in anymore. The kind of risks or, or the kind of tricks that were high impact I wanted to be able to keep skating into my 40s and even 50s. I mean, I didn't expect it then, but but here I am. So it was more about what is it that I love so much about it and how do I keep this interesting and how can I stay creative in this space? And that was it. And so I, I, I'd like to say, I, I don't even like to say I made compromises, but but I just sort of shifted my my style and my priority of how I skate into something that was still manageable, but fun. And that was it. And um, I mean, just like uh, Bobby and me, we had crashes and just laying on the tarmac after a bike crash, you went down once or twice. Did you ever had moments where you go, dang, I had it. I don't need to do this anymore. I don't need to get up. I don't want to get up. Did you ever have moments like that? Um, I've had moments with, with specific moves and techniques like that. Um, not, not something that was so, that was so, um, that was, that was like an ultimatum that, that I said, that's it. I'm done with this. This is too much. It was, it's more that I, I don't know. I, I guess the example was, is there, there was a trick that I was trying to do for the last time because I knew it was going to be really hard to get to. Um, the trick is called a uh, heel flip burial lean air, um, and it's kind of a trick where you kick your board. It flips one way. It also rotates another direction. You catch it, and you come in, and it's something I used to do easily, um, and I knew that it was going to be a little bit trickier to get to. I started trying it, and little did I realize that I just don't have it anymore. I don't have the consistent flick. I don't have the consistent catch. I'm not getting it to my feet, and, and I tried it for couple days and finally just said I guess I'm not doing the last one <laughs> I did my last one whenever that was 
um, because this just isn't working for me. And so that's, that's to answer your question, that's as far as I've gone with it, where I say that, yeah, that's it. I'm not doing that anymore. And I know this because I tried it and I gave it everything I had and it just doesn't happen anymore. I mean, that that's part of just getting getting older, more mature, realizing your, your limits and stuff. But, you know, I understand that you have uh, four kids of your own and six uh, and, and two stepchildren. Did did mm-hmm. becoming a parent change your view on on the fear factor, the pucker factor, um, the risk factor, the longevity factor? Because I know that once um, once I had my first child, I started to look at things a little different you know, take descents a little bit slower, maybe break before the corner. You know, do, do you attribute any of that to, you know, having kids? Because I mean, obviously that starts to put other, other factors at play. Um, I, I, to tell you the truth, I, I didn't because I was so hyper-focused on my career and I never, I never gave it that much thought to the danger factor because I had always made it through my injuries and, and none of them were that traumatic. It wasn't until that that big accident that I shifted my mindset, and and a lot of that definitely had to do with having kids because I want I want to be around for my kids, um, and I want to be uh, I, I want to be present and, and active in their lives, and so uh, that definitely gave me a dose of reality that you can't take this for granted, you can't keep doing these crazy tricks. And expect that everything's gonna be okay when you're you're already in your midlife. So uh, talking about your kids and some yeah some tricks, some training, some bad th- things happen. Are you you more nervous watching your children in the half pipe <laughs> or trying the skateboard, or were you nervous yourself when you were standing on top about to dive down? What's what's harder for you to watch your children? Or yourself, I can answer that easy for myself. It's so much more challenging for me to watch my children on the bike than I ever was nervous for myself. But how is it for you? It depends on which kid you're talking about. <laughs> They're all so different. And they they all skate, which is very cool for me. But they all have a different sense of of their risk factor and their confidence level. And so... A couple of them I don't worry about at all. <clears throat> a couple of them, um, I know that they have a pretty good sense of their limitations, but they're but they're willing to push it. And then, well, there's one that has never had a fear factor um, or concern for his safety, and that's the one that makes me the most nervous. Oh, so you got one of those as well? <clears throat> yes. <laughs> um You know, he's, he's much better. I mean, our, our kids are mostly grown up. They're, three are in college. Two are living on their own as adults. Um, so we only have my 13-year-old daughter at home. But, but the one that, uh, that I'm speaking of, he's, he's in his uh, third year of college and, and definitely um, has come to terms with his mortality a little more now. As he should, as he should. But, uh, you know, again, <clears throat> being, being a cycling, tethered to cycling sort of podcast, I need to ask a couple more cycling related questions. Um, I know you have your own BMX freestyle uh, bike brand, but uh, mm-hmm. what what is your 
connection to cycling if if there is any outside of the BMX. Do you, do you have a road bike? Do you have a mountain bike? I mean, you live in a beautiful place. Uh, I'm sure sure you have friends that 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 ride. Do you ever get out there on the road bike or the mountain bike? Um, I don't too much. I I used to ride when I was a kid. Uh, before I started skating, I had well, what I thought was a BMX bike, but <laughs> I know I know now that it was it was something a little less um, of less quality. And so, what was our thing? I mean, we used to ride down, we used to do dirt jumps and stuff like that um, in elementary school. And then when I got into skating, I I, I didn't ride bikes. Um, I do have a road bike here at, at home, and uh, my connection, to be honest, in in terms of doing licensed bikes is that we used to do this big tour called the boom boom huck jam and the boom boom huck jam included skateboarding uh bmx trick riding and uh, motocross and so when we started licensing for goods especially at uh bigger stores we licensed skateboards and bikes on the huck jam name and i actually had a pro bmx rider mike escamilla help me with the design to sort of bring a true BMX bike to that level of retail because everything else that was there didn't reflect what you would be able to actually ride or want to do those kind of tricks on. Um, so we were really proud of, of what we created there. And then the Huck Jam ended as a tour. So now it's the, it's the Tony Hawk skate park series um, and the Tony Hawk bike series. But, but it all stems from that. Um, to answer your question, the last time I rode a BMX bike, I learned how to do a backflip on it. So I like to think I walk the walk a little bit. I saw that. I saw that. I tell you, you won up me right there. I would. I, I'm a stay on the ground sort of guy. You know, I was a skier. <laughs> I didn't like jumping. Skateboarding was out of the question. Mountain biking. Uh, we have the Olympic champion uh, Yolanda Neff uh, that lives pretty close by, and she sent this video on Instagram of her catching air, and I'm like, nope, I'm gonna stay on the the ground. Sort. I saw that. <clears throat> it's, it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I have I have massive respect. Like I know. I, I believe the danger factors, especially in doing tricks, is is much bigger than riding a skateboard, because uh, you have all that metal between your legs, and it, you're there's no there's no easy way to test tricks. If you want to get more out of your free time, sign up to Outside Plus for less than a dollar a week. You can get a hard copy of Valley News magazine, choose two books a year from VeloPress. Access all the premium content from the whole outside family, including Yoga Journal, Peloton Magazine, and Backpacker. And that's not all. There are discounts of the hottest gear and biggest events, as well as virtual health and fitness courses. It's $350 of value every year in one $99 subscription. But if you head to valuenews.com slash outsideplus, and enter Bobby Jens 25, all one word, lowercase, at checkout. You'll receive our special 25% discount and you make a good deal great. And now back to our chat with Tony. Um, hey Tony, you had such a long and stellar career. Did you ever think what would have happened to you without skateboarding? Where would you be today if you wouldn't discovered or if you wouldn't have discovered the skateboard for you? What would be your next best dream job? Ah, 
I don't know about, well, I, I've always been into computers since an early, early age. And, um, and then video editing, um, even at a young age as well, when um, it was obviously tape to tape. And then I got one of the very first uh, nonlinear systems, which is what we know now as digital editing. And so I think I, I think I would have done something in that realm. I don't know what exactly, but I feel like I would have been good at doing editing on the fly, you know, sort of like, I don't know, news field reporting or something. It's not, not, I don't say it's a dream job, but it would have kept me connected to technology. Well, talking about being connected to technology, I mean, guys like me only envision skating because of your video games. And tell us how that whole thing started and how many are out there because like everyone that I speak to, you know, maybe not a skater. They're just like, hey, tell Tony, I love the old uh, Tony Hawk <laughs> skater too. Mm-hmm. And how many How many do you have? And like, yeah, what was the, what was the genesis of that whole project? Um, it, that's a tricky question to answer about how many there are because there's so many different uh, consoles and versions of, of what we what, what we offered at last count it was about 14 maybe 15 um, but like I said they they were some were specific to phones and some were specific to uh, console launches uh, so um, yeah what basically it all started <clears throat> with um, Activision uh calling me up because they had heard that i was interested in doing a game because i had actually been pitching a game with um with a pc programmer at the time uh this guy had written a a engine that was basically a a skater that could move you could control him with the keyboard and it would move and do little tricks and go in and out of bowls it wasn't it wasn't that exciting but it was just something that that i i thought yeah i wanted i would love to do a game and so we pitched a bunch of um publishers and console manufacturers and and didn't get a lot of traction and then activision called me and they said hey we heard that you're trying to do a skate game we're actually going to do a skate game we'd like to we'd like to show it to you and and maybe have your input on it and so i went to activision and they had created an engine um, based on another game that they did called apocalypse which starred bruce willis which was kind of the first um game to include a a celebrity as a main character and the game did not do well but they the engine was perfect for skateboarding so the very first version of what became tony hawk's pro skater was uh bruce willis on a skateboard with a gun strapped to his back skating through a desert wasteland um and i picked it up i was there uh at activision i picked it up and i immediately started doing tricks and I just had this feeling that this is this is it. This is this is what I've been searching for. This is what I would have wanted to create had I had the resources. And I signed on right then, um, and then spent the next year and a half with them developing what became THPS. Um, and it got it, 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 before the release even. It was getting really good buzz, and we were surprised how much attention it was getting. And so they signed on to do a sequel before the first one was even released. And what is the time frame of that? Because I mean, Activision. Uh, that was so. I signed on in 1998, and then the game was released in September of 1999. Awesome. Yeah, you made a, a lot of people really happy with those video games. There's no doubt about that. And um, you know, I, I believe that 
you know, that's one of the things that you were really successful at, uh, brought attention to the sport, like I said, to guys like me that didn't really know what was going on. But talking about bringing attention to the sport, um, you know, the pandemic, the pandemic with cycling and and skateboarding kind of brought people back to the bike and the skateboard, so much so that it was even in the Olympics this year. Um, how was that? You were, you were commentating for NBC. How was that? commentating in a sport that you basically helped develop, but you weren't able to actually participate in. Was there a part of you that wanted to be out there or were you like, you know what, this is my legacy and these kids are the ones that are going to benefit from it? Yeah, I didn't, I, I didn't feel the draw to be in it. I was very excited for it to happen. I, I felt like it was, a, it was a symbol of of the perseverance of skaters throughout the decades, especially the ones from my era that were mostly made fun of for doing it and that were never considered legitimate. And so I was excited to see it happen, to, to be there in person. I mean, I got, I felt very lucky. Not even the athletes families could be there. And there I was just roaming freely and skating the court. I was the first one on the park course. Um, well, you deserve it. Cool. You so, deserve uh, that. But, but in my day, but in my day, the Olympics were kind of the anti, um, the, we were, we were anti-establishment by default because we had sort of been put there in, in that skateboarding was, was not considered legitimate, was not considered cool, was for outcasts and for rebels. And so we were already sort of pigeonholed into that. So for us, the Olympics was, was, was the anti um version of what we were doing not that i was ever against it going into the olympics but it didn't feel like we needed that and then as as the rise of the x games and everything else came into play where we found that we had a huge audience and huge interest in what we were doing and it was kind of like the x games or or the, the other events through the year were our olympics um so it was uh you know and then and then for them <clears throat> For them to finally recognize that the IOC uh, was important, I think it was inevitable. I mean, how, how can they deny it? You know, if they if they really want to get young viewers to tune in to the Olympics, they gotta have skateboarding. They gotta have bike riding. Like it's just, it's 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 it, 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 you can only have so many swimming events. Um, talking about um, getting a young audience, how do you explain the? variety of ages at the Olympics. I mean, there's like a 12-year-old kids to, what is it, the oldest one, uh, was it 46 years old? Yeah. How is that possible? That's probably in no other sport. We see a range of 30 years within the same Olympics. How, how would you explain that? Um. Well, the, the best explanation is that nowadays the, the younger generation of skaters have more resources available um, I mean, it's not a surprise to me. I, like I said, I turned pro when I was 14. I, I was considered the number one ranked skateboarder when I was 16. So having a youthful element to it is, is not something new. It's just that nowadays you can do it into your older age. So in my day, when I was 16, there were no 30-year-olds skating because they were just considered that they, they – it was more that, that – there was no living to be made for them, so they couldn't really do it. Um, and so they kind of quit. And so it's basically like if you, if you reached an age of responsibility, you were supposed to, you were 
you were expected to quit skateboarding. Um, and also you're just going to be made fun of, like you still do that kid's sport. But nowadays a lot of the pros are, especially the ones who have reached their prime are in their twenties and thirties. And then some of us are still doing it into our forties and fifties. So it runs the spectrum of age and it's not surprising to me. I know that was a big thing for people to take away is that there was this great age difference. Um, I would say that the countries with the, the older skaters are the ones that maybe didn't have the skate parks to develop a new generation of skaters. But at the same time, you can't take that away from them. Like they, they, they've been doing this whole time. They still have valid skill set, And I just thought it was cool. I don't know. I can't, you know, it's, it wasn't a big surprise to me because I live in it, but, um, but I think it's great. And it just shows how inclusive skating is, how diverse it is and that you can be doing it at any age almost. And, and you've helped, uh, in a massive way with the inclusion and diversity, uh, first with the Tony Hawk foundation. And now that it's known as the skate park project that you've opened up or help opened up, get involved with the communities, get support to open these skate parks, you know, all over. Tell us a little bit about your foundation and the work that you do there. Sure. Yeah. Well, the skate park project, um, we are coming up on 20 years now and, and we help to develop public skate parks in underserved areas. Um, we uh, do a round of grants every quarter for projects in different communities. And our biggest uh, grant uh, giveaway is $25,000. But we found that that goes a long way in terms of uh, finally getting it uh, approved, finally getting uh, or getting more funding, matching funds. I think I think our endorsement is worth just as much as the money we give, and uh, to date we've helped to fund. Well, we've helped to open over 700 skate parks. Uh, we've given away over 10 million dollars, and I feel like we're we're even more effective than we've ever been because skateboarding is still on the rise. And I believe that every community needs a skate park. You know, I, I got very lucky that I lived near one of the last skate parks in the U.S. in the 80s. And it was never lost on me how lucky I was to have that space and that sense of community and that place to grow. So you, you look at a skate park as a little come-together place for the kids where they could like join and, you know, do some sports together and, yeah, probably do some, yeah, finding some new friends and a common interest, right? That's it. Yeah, I mean, it, it is, it's a place of belonging. And the the whole thing with skateboarding, especially in bigger cities or in inner cities, is that the the cities will will discourage people from skating through the streets or on public property, but not provide a place for them. And that is not the solution because even if you are telling kids don't skate here, they're going to keep coming back. Um, they they've found something that speaks to them, and so when you provide a place for them, they have the sense of of ownership of it. They have a sense of community and a, a place of belonging and and It's not like we're trying to make training grounds. We're just trying to provide places for them to feel like they belong. And I found my I found my tribe at the skate park when I was a kid. You know, we were all from different backgrounds, but we all had this very common interest that transcended socioeconomic, racial backgrounds. We just all loved loved skating with each other. And that's what it boils down to. I mean, regardless what sport you're involved with, um, passion. And you obviously have been the uh, the leader of that passion in in the sport of skateboarding. But 
I I have one more kind of geeky um, question because you know obviously skateboarding is a very high stress, high risk um, sort of sport, and you know your energy levels, your focus are kind of dictated by the your food, your mood, and your movement. Um, you look like you've really taken care of yourself. And I think that's one of the reasons why you've had, you know, such longevity in the sport. Did you do anything differently nutritionally than, than maybe guys that didn't last in the sport as long as you, or is there any sort of like nutritional protocol so that you guys are making the right decisions at the right time with great reaction time. Because that to me seems what your sport boils down to is making the right decisions and that reaction time being, being straight up. But if you don't have that energy in, in the body from the food and the nutrients that you're consuming, that you're fueling with, um, that be, can be compromised. So did you have any different, uh, nutritional regime throughout your, your whole career? Well, I, I can't say that I, I, uh, committed to anything too serious. I definitely found myself <clears throat> eating less meat as I was, as I was going through, um, adulthood and, uh, not, not, I didn't go full plant-based, but, but I wasn't, you know, when I was a kid, it was, it was all hamburgers and hot dogs and barbecue. And, and so I found myself trying to keep a healthy balance of that. Um, and, as I got older, especially as I approached more middle age, I felt like I needed to have a little more discipline in that sense. And so uh, that's where I'm at now. I'm, I, I definitely lean more towards plant-based, but but I was just in Texas and I still love good barbecue. So <laughs> that's that's still part of my regime. But um, And just not to excess. I mean, that's my secret is really just not indulging too much because I, I when I was a kid, it was just whatever goes milkshakes sodas um you know all day and and a lot of fast food um and and now i've managed to keep a balance of that but i can't say that i'm on some crazy protocol or that i study a lot of it either i mean i definitely go on recommendations of people who i think are healthy and professionals and and i see what works for people and and you know i can't i, I can't keep the pace and the the somewhat careless diet that I had in my twenties and still expect to skate. I was wondering, um, I mean, you're famous for your entire career, but like for me as a non-expert for skating, the 900 sticks out, right? You were the first one ever. When did you ever start thinking about it? And when did you realize it's feasible. I actually can't do it. What in ten years' time, two years' time? <laughs> how did it all build up to actually finally doing the 900? How long did it take you to put your mind around it and try it and actually successfully land it? Um, well, there are a lot of different answers to that, but basically, I learned 720s in 1985, which is a double spin in the air. That that was the mm, first yep, 720. Yep. And so obviously the, the natural progression of spinning is, well, what is the next thing in 900? And 900 is so much more daunting because when you're skating a ramp, when you do a 900, that means you're blind twice to your landing zone. And, and anything before a 900, like a 540-720, you're only blind once. And so it, it's just a lot more to take on. 
the first time I ever tried it was in 1988, 80, I think. Um, I was in France. I was at a, at a kind of stuck in this skate camp uh, in Bourges outside of, outside of Paris for about four or five weeks. And I got really used to the ramp. So I thought, oh, let's try it. And, and I tried it a few times and it didn't go well. I landed on my back basically. And I, I couldn't figure out how to spin that whole way or how to commit to it. So I stopped trying it then and there and then didn't pick it up again until about five or six years later. Um, and that's when I started to really pursue it because I started to, to commit to that full spin. Um, and so around 1995 is when I was going full on, on a mission to try to do this. And, and I would, I would set out to, set a date i would bring someone to film me and i would i would try to do it i ended up um breaking my rib at one point when i finally committed to one that i thought i had <clears throat> and then i um threw out my back a couple times and and so through the years of 95 to 98 basically gave up on it um i mean tried it off and on until finally it was like when i did get hurt i just stopped trying it and then in 1999 when the x games came around they had a best trick event and the best trick event usually was just a sideshow and it was much more for the skaters themselves to just try their more impossible tricks and for the most part never make them but every once in a while something would get made and then that would be the highlight of the of the 20 minutes and so it, it to a spectator it just looked like a bail fest and so at that event i had one trick that was my best trick at the time <clears throat> which was a variation on a 720 and I had only done it once in my life. And so that was what I set out to do. And, and when I, about halfway into the event, I made a varial 720, which was my best trick. That's all I had planned. And so the announcer that was doing the live commentary said, Oh, maybe he's going to go for that 900. And I was just like, dude, <laughs> I've had enough 900. Um, but at the same time, I didn't really have any plan. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll spin a couple to show them what it looks like. That was my only plan. Like I'll, I'll spin a 900 just so you can see what the process is. And you know, it, it looks pretty wild. And then on about my third or fourth attempt, I realized that I had, I was getting consistent speed. I was getting consistent spin and that had never happened before. Usually when I was trying it, I did one good attempt and I get five terrible attempts. So I never had a good rhythm going into it. And so I started realizing that I'm, I'm in this mode and I can start to see my landing zone. And if I'm ever going to commit to it again or get hurt on it again, it's going to be here. And so somewhere around my fourth or fifth try, I decided I'm either going to make this tonight or I'm going to get taken out in a hospital, or taken out in, a, in an ambulance. So there was about 15 years of trying, giving up, coming back to it. That's, that's tenacious. You were really, you wanted that one, didn't you? <laughs> I did, but I definitely was going through waves of it uh, in the mid-90s. That was, that was the, the, the time when I was devoted to it, and I was obsessed on it, and, um, and it didn't really work out. So I think that it was probably better that I was in that headspace, the X Games 99, where that was not the plan, because I, I would have been too much expectation if I, if I had gone to that event with only that in mind. Man, that, that I mean, you're talking about 
being in the flow, realizing that you're in the flow, and then being able to make that decision to do something that you weren't planning on doing. But before we let you go, Tony, because I know we're get, we're taking up a lot of your time, um, can you enjoy the sport like just going easy? I know that you know Jens and I we still ride our bikes, and you know every once in a while we get this guy that comes up and remembers us when we were racing and wants to kind of press us all the time. Can you? just go out and enjoy skating or does it always feel like you have to be Tony Hawk when there's people around? Um, I, I absolutely do go enjoy it. And, and luckily I have my own private ramp and also a private skate park in our, in our, on our property. So I do enjoy just cruising around those. Um, it's hard to, to feel that sense of relaxation when I'm out in the wild if I'm out at a skate park. And so to answer your questions, I definitely feel the pressure when I'm in public to at least do something that would stand out. And I don't know how that's ever going to leave me, <laughs> to be honest, but I do have a few sort of default tricks in my back pocket that I feel like are impressive enough that people, if they saw me, they're like, oh, I saw Tony Hawk and he did this thing over there. And that was pretty cool. Hey, um, you you got to be one of the most recognized athletes <clears throat> in the U.S. or maybe in the world. Did you ever have any funny moments where people go, hey, are you trying to look like Tony Hawk? Always. Do you ever had moments like that? Almost every day. Uh, no, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, in fact, so much that, that I started sharing those encounters uh, on social media because some of them were just so funny and the scenarios were ridiculous and that's sort of become a meme onto itself where people see me now and they do know it's me, but they have to say like, Hey man, anyone ever tell you, you look like Tony Hawk. And that's just like a whole, that's a, that's a whole new element where it's, it's become a joke. But I was just in, um, where was I? I was in Houston last week and, uh, went to this restaurant and this woman was behind the counter. I could tell she's looking at me weird and she's like, man, Does anyone tell you you look just like Tony Hawk? And I thought that she knew the joke. And I said, yes, but you're the first today. And she's like, that's crazy. You do so much. And that was it. And she walked away. Well, you're, you're a rock star. You're <laughs> wow. a legend. Um, we've been <laughs> so that's, that's pretty much how it goes now. <clears throat> you're a rock star. You're a legend. We've been absolutely honored to have you on our podcast. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today, and man, wish you all the best. I mean, uh, we're all 50 now. I figure we're about halfway through, so keep skating. We'll keep riding. I hope so. And uh, who knows? Somewhere down the line, maybe we'll uh, we'll ride together, but uh, skating is pretty much out of the question for me. All right. Well, you know, if you guys just want to cruise, I'm here. Well... That's all the time we have for this week, y'all. Huge, massive holiday thanks to Tony Hawk for being our guest. Thanks for listening to us for an entire year already. And hopefully you will listen to us for many more years to come. So please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Velo News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne, and this episode was edited by Tim Moza. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us and maybe one or two Christmas stories as well. 
Before we go, a quick word from our sponsor, Zwift. One of the most fun parts about cycling is climbing. So why not try Garrett Thomas's athlete workout, Fun is Flying Uphill. A great pillar of any climber is muscular endurance, and believe me when I say, that's what you'll get. Testing yourself on training plans alongside world-class cyclists is what makes Zwift so exciting. I can't wait to show my friends the fitness I built at home. All you need is a bike, trainer, and the Zwift app. Visit Zwift.com and I'll see you on there soon. Ride on.